Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Battle of the Leylines, the final chronicle. Thank you so much for all the actors' applications for the specials in season three. Y'all are amazing. I am currently sorting through everyone, and I am so excited. If you want more information about what's going on, sign up for our newsletter on our website or check out our socials. You know, a variety of the Greenlands, the Greenlands official. If you like what we're doing here and want to give us some advice, drop us a rating or a review or a comment. I really appreciate it. For this episode of Battle of the Leylines, I would like to thank our incredible cast. James Hare, David McCran, Helen Verry, Kitty Bennett, Linda Dutson, Sam Perry, Vicky Holding, and Alex Gardner. Also, our amazing editor, Ellen Glynn, and our composer, Dennis Moen. And hey, thank you to you, too. woods in the Baron's domain. Adamant is thundering along angrily, wiping off his roughly washed hair. He's carrying hunting gear and muttering to himself. It's Pomard. What would she know? He comes along the path bend and sees a young man ahead of him. Adamant frowns and calls out to him. Yeah, stranger! Jem turns around as Adamant comes up. What are you doing here? Why you want to know? Because you're on my family's lands, and only villagers have permission to walk here. So? Here. What's that smell? I... 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 I I do not know. I guess it's true what they say about the nobility. All pigs in a trough. Even smell like them, too. Adamant suddenly realises. You were that horse thief, weren't you? And you be a womanizer and a murderer. Like hell I am. Whatever helps you sleep at night, rich boy. Adamant lunges at him. Jem avoids him and kicks Adamant hard in the stomach. Adamant doubles over, wheezing. <sighs> Jem looks down at him dispassionately. Don't worry, rich boy. I ain't going to hurt you. Yet. I'll be off your lands in no time. Jem turns and stalks off, leading Adamant, watching him from his small, personal world of pain. It's the courtyard of the Baron's castle. It's daytime. The 30 ex-brigands are drawn up in three rows of ten. Adamant is standing facing them, and Morag is off to one side. The men are trying not to look at Morag. The Baron is heading purposively across the yard towards them and is accompanied by his four domestic guards and two women who are carrying armfuls of women's clothing. He is approaching the recruits from the rear and they can't see him. Can we do this one more time? And if Kieran and Gavin miss it, they will have to be failed. I don't see why I have to do this bleeding marching and presenting thing. Because if we are attacked, we have to... This wouldn't help if we were attacked. The Baron and his female servants are sneaking up behind the two men. I would think so, wouldn't you? The Baron joins Adamant at the front, holding the two men by the ears. As a fighting force, you lovely little boys are supposed to be able to do stuff together. If you can't even bloody well walk in time with each other, what are you going to do when you have to do something complicated? The Baron snaps his fingers at the two female servants who politely present the two men with dresses. Now... Ladies don't have to march in time. So since you're so horrible at it, you can be ladies for the day. The two men look hangdog and take the dresses from the female servants. The Baron turns to Adamant. Now, what is it ladies do? 
apart from being beautiful and paragons of morality and that. Um, sewing. Gardening. Ah, yes. Was thinking these boys are going to have problems with the whole beauty and morality thing. Gardening. You boys can do that, can't you? The Baron gestures at the two men who are trying to get the blouses over their armour. Not over your armour, you useless pile of excrement! You'll rip the nice linen we Millie here spent all of last month making! The men panic and start to try to unbuckle their armour under their dresses. The other men in the rank are trying not to laugh. One of them fails and cackles aloud. The Baron zeroes in on him. You think it's funny? You laughing at these fine ladies and their struggle? The man desperately shakes his head as Kieran and Gavin stare daggers at him. The Baron suddenly pulls out a pair of tiny scissors. The man flinches and, terrified, tries to focus on the tiny scissors. Here, you can go help these ladies. The Baron turns back and strides away to stand next to Adamant. Right, the rest of yours. One more time on the double! It's daytime the village. A farmer is walking towards his three sheep. He looks up to see them, but two have suddenly fallen over on their backs with their legs in the air. One is levitating and slowly spinning above them. The farmer is horrified. The draper's wife gets out and unrolls a piece of cloth from a cupboard to inspect it. It's full of moth holes. She holds it up and inspects it, horrifiedly, and the moths all fly away, revealing the whole cloth was made of moths. Two dairymaids arrive at the dairy to start work, and suddenly the perspective changes. The maids can see themselves through the cow's eyes. The maids' bodies suddenly look about aimlessly, and one of them starts chomping on some hay. The cows move in distress. At an inn on a small village square, the demon monk is calmly drinking ale. A man, covered in ash and soot, runs down the street. The rest of the men in the alehouse watch him run past. A man takes a sip of his ale and suddenly spits something out into his drink. An eyeball rolls to stare at him. A man has a missing eye which he puts his hand to and starts to stagger about. The monk smiles to himself, then also pulls an eyeball out of the drink to inspect it. The man behind him screams and is now one-eyed as well. The woods is later on. The demon monk is calmly leaning against a low wall. He is eating an apple and absent-mindedly tossing a small knife. Ahead up the track, Morag and Burb are standing next to their horses holding the reins. Morag is pointing. What have you done? Why is this stirrup on the floor? I didn't do anything. Are you saying I cut my own stirrup leather? The monk smiles and pockets the knife and begins to stroll over to the two boys. You said cut that stirrup leather there. I said put that stirrup leather there. Oh, that's going to cost me some more money now. Money I do not have. How am I supposed to afford a good gift for Risa? You're a prince. Can't you just sort of make it happen? Ha! With five years of negotiations, two assassination attempt, and at least one peasant revolt. I thought all princes were rich. Ah, my son. Adult life is far more complex than that. 
princes cannot go around spending their people's money willy-nilly. Morag looks up warily and puts his hands to his sword, but Burb recognises the monk from the castle. Oh, uh, it's all right, Morag. This is Brother Baswin. He helps out at the castle. Morag relaxes and stares disdainfully at the monk. Oh, I miss the old days. You could just ride out, murder a dragon and take its wealth. Now it's all, oh no, reptilian rights and the committee of reptilian representatives wants to educate your new choices. Morag rolls his eyes and gloomily kicks a stone on the road. Uh, well, funny you should mention that. But there is in fact a dragon up over Deadbent Way. Yeah, and? Well, last time I checked, we do not have a reptilian rights committee. In fact, I'm quite sure that we are still encouraged to kill them in this country. They were pest with their killings and maimings. Morag brightens up. Yeah, but does it have jewels? Some dragons hoard weird things. What if we go to all the effort of killing it and it just collects, well, I don't know, uh, soft furnishings? You have a point, but no. This one murders and then steals shiny object of great value. In fact, the most valuable item in its treasury is an offering cauldron of the god Immaculus. They say if you put a blood sacrifice in it, the god will bring you endless good luck and fortune. Burb is wide-eyed and excited. Yeah? You know all these legends and magic junk? Oh, you're like those ancient wizards. The demon monk smiles and folds his hands inside his sleeves. What is with you people and blood sacrifices? Are your gods anemic or something? Ha ha ha, yes. I believe your people sacrifice, uh, food. <laughs> Each sacrifices what they think is precious. Well, either way, if you were to destroy the dragon, you would not only be wealthy, you would also gain the gratitude of the townsfolk in that area. Morag sighs, looks at his scratched-up saddle and boots. Right. Where did you say this dragon was? Bent over something. Dead bent. There is an interesting story about that. the kitchen of the convent. It's daytime. Sister Blodwin is busily chopping cabbages and there are two big pans boiling on the stove. Sister Agatha, small, late middle-aged, with dark glasses and an eldritch, croaky voice, is just picking up a hessian bag from the side table. And get me lots of them lovely deep red roses, Aggie. Oh, they colour the pudding right nicely. You can get your sister... Botwaga, she winks heavily, to help you and all. Indeed, he, I mean she, is coming on quite well in the understanding of gardening. Aye, but I do think that anyone who could believe such an incubus as yours were a woman must be simple herself. Talking about simple... Sister Letice comes in and Agatha smiles innocently at her. Sister Letice looks disapprovingly at Sister Blodwin. Uh, pudding, Sister Blodwin? Uh, who for? For all of us. 
Not the novices. Why not? Because I am the novice mistress and decide what they can and can't eat, Sister Blodwin. Eh, you're a stingy Nicholas baggage, Sister Letitia. Uh, the girls have been working right hard, getting ready for the solstice festival and could do with a nice bit of summit. Letitia starts to wander around the kitchen, tasting various samples from the food. You're just the refectioner. My pay scale ranks above yours, so you will do what I say or I will report you for heresy. Sister Blodwin stops moving her cabbage around and looks up in mock shock. Agatha smirks. You're getting paid for this, sister. You and I both know that getting financial rewards for serving the gods is an evil worse than almost all. No, no, I, I, mean, I mean, no, I didn't mean that. Aye, death and destruction awaits the false prophets who use the words of the gods to make their riches. Oh, you know I do not mean pay. I am not paid. I meant... She suddenly realises that the two other sisters are grinning at her. No, you two are just... awful. She flaps her sleeves at them and runs out of the room. Some people should not be given power. Yeah. Ever since she's had more novices to tell what to do, she's been having airs. The two women watch Letice flap her sleeves at three novices hanging out what looks like large bloomers on the rose bush. She makes them take the bloomers off. Although she is having to deal with a lot of stupid. The two sisters laugh. The library at the Shrine of the Bone. It is daytime. The abbess is seated at an old desk with a pile of old books around her. Sister Patience is perched up on some ladders perusing a book. Even with her hair in a mess and her sleeves covered in dust from the books, she still looks utterly gorgeous. The abbess is holding up a book and is comparing Patience's face to the book. The book has a portrait of a woman surrounded by angels in sunlight. What is your favourite food, Patience? Milk bread, Mother. The abbess checks the book, turns a few pages and looks up at Patience. Hmm. What hour were you born? On the fourth day of the fourth month of the waning sun, in the year of the reciprocal pheasant. Um, why do you ask me this, Mother? The abbess is deep in reading her book. The exact day. Abbas said reincarnation. So I've been looking into it. What are your abilities precisely, my dear? Patience shifts uncomfortably. Um, I can create a light that banishes demons... I can do some very simple weak healing. I can also transfer warmth around from cold things to hot things. The abbess raises an eyebrow and turns her page. Anything else? Well, um, my father always said I had a guardian spirit. And when I was small, I used to hear a kind voice talking to me when I was miserable. I rarely hear it now because I'm happy. The abbess is writing notes and is flipping through her book, looking like she is reaching a conclusion. Well, I'm going to say this against my better judgment, and probably this is some kind of heresy, and everything is these days, but... She takes a deep breath. Patient looks at her with mild fear. I suspect that you are some kind of reincarnation of inheritor of Adora, the first great priestess of the sun. Patience looks shocked. No, Mother, that is not possible. She is incredibly powerful. 
She can heal whole armies, bring people back from the dead. She is almost a goddess in her own right. I am just a stupid girl who can barely heal a paper cut. She is very clearly shaken and scared. She grabs a book and shoves it towards the abyss. But look, look, I found the other three keys. The moon, the necklace from the priory, iron, gold and spirit. But I can't find the fifth one. My child, I understand that you are scared. And I agree with you that you are nowhere near as powerful as Adora. Or even as wise as her. But my mind is made up. You have in you some part of her. You were born on the thousandth anniversary of her death. You have her face and her abilities. You are devoted to the sun at a level that a normal novice could never hope to achieve. Patience drops the book in her lap. She looks on the edge of tears. What will you do? Send me away. I don't want to go to the great temples in the mountains. They're so cold. I don't. <laughs> Patience starts crying. The abbess gets up to comfort her. Oh, there, there, child. This changes nothing. You will stay with us and we shall look after you. We always have and we always will. You are our little patience. We have watched you grow. I would never send you away. The abbess pats Patience on the shoulders and strokes her hair. Patience slowly stops crying. The abbess then gets up and wanders back to her books. I will look into these key lines. As if you are a reincarnation of Adora, the first priestess, you are connected to the keys. Interestingly here, I keep coming across references to the great library in the Priory of the Moon. You mean I have to defend the keys or something, Mother? Or I have to go to the old Priory's library? Well, we all have to protect the keys, dear. She and Patience start to put the books away on the shelves. I must admit to a reluctance to visiting the old Priory, though. She looks worriedly at Sister Patience, who nods gloomily. Yes, yes. I hear the Priory has become a home of darkness much crueler than normal since the Moor incident. Inside the Baron's castle, in the Solar, it is daytime. The view from the Solar window shows part of the courtyard gardens and the main courtyard. Servants come and go, and the two miscreants, in full gown and headdress, can be seen upon their hands and knees, cutting at the grass with scissors. There are two women giggling and pointing at them. The girls pretend to be big and manly, flexing their arms, stroking their chins as if they had beards. Another servant passes by them. He tips his hat at the two miscreants and greets them as if they were ladies. This embarrasses them dreadfully. A group of armed men walk past, and one of them puts a flower between his teeth and pretends to mince behind them. The flower man gets too close up to the two men in dresses, and they leap on him and beat him up. The rest of the servants shout and cheer them on. Adamant is watching this byplay through the solar window, near to which his mother and Imelda sit sewing. Adamant frowns and shakes his head. What's the matter, dear? <clears throat> it's just that... I don't think that father's idea about shaming was a very good one. He won't like it if you interfere. Adamant nods and looks back through the window. No, I don't know why I bother. At least I'm too old for the strap now. The two men in dresses have won 
and the men who teased them are patting them on their shoulders and helping away the beaten-up flower man. The two men straighten their dresses and their hair and go back to cutting the grass, but seem a little less embarrassed. Inside the Baron's castle, in his business room, it is daytime. Come! Good morning, father. Yes? Could I... Could I just have a little word, please? A little word? Speak up, boy. Stop pussyfooting around. Speak! Adamant stands up and squares his shoulders. Um, I'd... Yes? Adamant starts to deflate, but shakes himself and almost shouts in one breath. I don't think that putting the men in dresses helped much, sir. And why not? Because... because they don't understand why we make them do this stuff. And putting them in Withan's clothing is just... weird. It's about ruddy respect. They don't need to know why they do it. I tell them to do it, they do it. I could have had them whipped like we used to do, but I was being kind. No, no, I understand. It's just they aren't soldiers, they're brigands. They aren't used to blindly obeying stuff, and I think that... The Baron stands up, pushes away his chair, and starts to pace. Look, if you won't take my advice, son, you'll be left trying to wrestle with the blighters yourself. Do you think you can handle that? Well... I, I mean, you did give them to me to train. At this point, you're basically training them through me. The Baron stops pacing and turns around to his son. Well, if you want to take the reins into your own hands with the men, be it on your own head then. I trust you to do this and this well. If you don't, you will no longer trust me ever again. I know. Baron waves him away. That's it, that's it. There you go then. Element bows and exits the room. The Baron plonks down irritatedly and starts writing again. Outside, Adamant leans on the other side of the door and sighs. He arranges his hair with a shaking hand and then does his best to march back down the hallway. Inside the draper's shop, it's daytime. Morning. Good morning, Mistress Walleye. I've come to collect that blue fustian if you... Uh, you'll be lucky. Fustian's been adding back moths and corduroy, lawn and calico as well. It's a demons, this is. Demons, I tell you. We've had a moth storm. I'm sure it's not demons, Mistress Walleye. I'm sure it's just moth migration. The draper's wife is sweeping moths towards the door with her usual pursed, disapproving mouth. It's that new elf draper girl. She's brought the demons with her. She's a magic user. Ain't no proper draper. She sent demons to sort out the competition from decent working folks like us. Her stock has not been touched. All sitting there pretty, whereas ours has been eaten. That's ridiculous, Mistress Walleye. The girl is maybe one quarter elf or even less. She has no knowledge of magic. This is her first ever shop. We should help the young in their efforts to make a living. The reason why her shop was probably untouched is because she has heard of soap. We don't have to scrub her cloth eight times before we can wear it, like yours. The draper's wife stares daggers at Imelda. Imelda shrinks behind the Baroness. You can do whatever you like, but I'm going to make sure that no one goes shopping at that elf shop. Them foreign fabrics ain't wholesome. Wearing that stuff can give you carbuncles, you know. 
Mistress Waller, you are being irrational. I shall seek some cloth elsewhere. Imelda, give the lady the florin that we owe her from last time and come along. Just because you have an unnatural liking for elves don't mean the rest of us does. A corridor inside the Baron's castle. It's daytime. Burb and Kazak, a young dwarf with a scant beard, with bits of gold in it, and the usual leather armour plating, come around the corner of the corridor. Yeah, a wish each. All the things I could wish for. Burb starts to bend and examine a lock with his tongue out, in great concentration. Kazak, you do all the ones all the way down across the other side of the corridor, while I do these. Then we'll do the West Annex. Kazak saunters over to the other side of the corridor. He bends and inspects. Green, you say, boyo? Kazak pulls out a device with a whole lot of complicated eye lenses and seeing contraptions. He puts it on his head and drops the lenses in front of his eyes. Oh, I forgot. You're going to need one of these. Burb comes up behind him with a small stick. Kazak turns around, his eyes and various pieces of his face are ridiculously distorted by the lenses. Burb steps back in horror. Kazak silently holds out his hand for the stick which Burb hands to him, worriedly. That was episode three of the Battle Ley Lines from the Greenlands Presents. I would like to thank our brilliant editor Ellen Glynn for her patience in editing this episode and uh, putting up with my deadlines. <laughs> and the talented Dennis Moen for doing the music. If you want to support us, share us with a friend or victim who you think will like us. If you don't, um, I'll let Burb rewire your entire household electric set. Um, he doesn't really have the concept of electricity, but I'm sure he'll work it out eventually. Anyway, love y'all. Thank you for your support. See y'all next time. <laughs>